0: Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 34. We're going to be back in the United States in the early 1900s and this week's episode is all about Dr. Linda Hazard. Women who wanted a quick and simple solution for their health issues visited Dr. Linda Hazard in the early 1900s. Socialites came to Hazard for her cutting-edge sanatorium, Wilderness Heights, to spend weeks relaxing and cleansing their bodies. They had no idea that Linda Hazard was a con artist. In addition to the fact that none of her remedies really worked, she was a serial killer. At Hazard sanatorium, torture, forced starvation, and even death were commonplace. Her sanatorium even earned the nickname Starvation Heights by the locals. But let's take a step back. Who was Linda Hazard? Well, Linda was born in 1867 in Carver County, Minnesota. She married at age 18 and had two children. However, it seems she left her family in 1898 in order to pursue her career in Minneapolis. In 1902, she established her own clinic, and started offering what would become her famed fasting therapy. But here's the really important fact. Linda didn't have a medical degree, despite the fact she called herself a doctor. She was granted a license to practice medicine in Washington due to a legal loophole that grandfathered in certain practitioners of alternative medicine without a degree. This would turn out to be a fatal error. According to Dylan for historicmysteries.com, Hazard was a fervent supporter and user of therapeutic fasting. Hazard claimed in a book she wrote to have studied fasting therapy under Dr. Edward Dewey, a pioneer in the field. The quote, no breakfast plan, which called for skipping breakfast and only eating two meals a day, was one of Dewey's concepts. According to Dr. Dewey, Overeating was the root cause of all illnesses and medical conditions. He even thought prolonged fasting could treat mental disorders like insanity. Although Dr. Dewey's theory was popular in the 20th century, medical professionals thought it was absurd. But Dr. Dewey's books were read by Hazard as she formed her foundational medical beliefs. Any illnesses, including tuberculosis or a mere headache, could be treated by fasting according to Dr. Hazard. She insisted that poor digestion was to blame for an illness's root cause, unclean blood. She would advertise her treatment in the newspapers at the time because she was adamant that prolonged fasting could treat any ailment or even disability. There is a drawback to fasting excessively. It's called starvation, and it would lead to the death of many patients. One such patient was Gertrude Young, As one of Linda's patients, she became obsessed with the notion of a treatment for partial paralysis that had rendered her arm and one leg all but useless following a stroke in 1900. Gertrude's medical team was only able to relieve the discomfort brought on by her paralysis, but they were unable to restore her mobility. Linda offered a course of treatment that included 40 days without meals and only limited amounts of permitted liquids such as half a cup of tomato soup or filtered orange juice. She offered this as a solution to Gertrude's mobility issues. At the start of November 1902, Gertrude Young started the fasting cure in her Minneapolis flat at 711 3rd Avenue South. Gertrude was looked after by a friend when Dr. Hazard, or one of her paid nurses, would drop by the flat to provide instructions and monitor the healing process. Nearly a month after starting the fast on November 12, 1902, Gertrude was discovered to be excessively sweating, shivering, and vomiting a thick, dark, foul-smelling substance. A call went out to Dr. Hazard, and despite the cold, she suggested they opened the windows to keep the air in the rooms fresh. Well, Gertrude got worse as a result. Later on that day, when Gertrude's stomach continued to heave, her companion called for a nurse to advise on what to do to assist her. After viewing Gertrude's condition, the nurse called Dr. Williams, a doctor who had previously treated Gertrude. He advised her to break the fast immediately and requested that her companion give her soft things like bone or vegetable broth until Gertrude's stomach could handle more. Gertrude insisted, nonetheless, that she continue with the entire 40 day fasting regimen with the firm belief that she would be well. The doctor emphasized that continuing to fast would probably result in her death and that it would never restore her arm and legs mobility. Even when her complexion became yellow and her fragile frame started to collapse in on itself, Gertrude stayed firm. On November 18th, the 39th day of the 40-day fast, she dies. As luck would have it, Dr. Williams also held the position of coroner for the Hennepin County. He launched an investigation into Gertrude's passing and asked the doctors at the University of Minnesota to perform a post-mortem. Three doctors came to the conclusion that Gertrude passed away from fatigue brought on by malnutrition and noted how little blood was in her system. Dr. Williams said that Gertrude was as fat as butter when he last visited her at his office in September and was in good enough health to ascend two flights of stairs to his office without difficulty. He determined that Gertrude was a victim of cruel and unnecessary quackery and requested that Dr. Hazard be charged. The panel conducting the inquest into Gertrude's death ultimately concluded that Dr. Hazard was not guilty of any crime. Authorities reminded the public that Gertrude could have broken her fast and sought medical attention at any time before her passing. Medical professionals proposed the theory that Dr. Hazard kept patients too weak to understand that she was robbing them not only of their health, but also of their money and possessions while she starved them. To support her extravagant business. The arguments didn't seem to matter, and Dr. Hazard was not charged. Linda would then go and fall in love and wed Sam Hazard. He was a West Point graduate and a former Marine, but his drinking destroyed any chance he might have had to advance in the service. It turns out that Samuel Hazard, whose real name was Samuel Hargrave, was already married to another woman in Minneapolis. In January 1904, Viva Fitzpatrick Hazard, the other woman, charged Samuel with bigamy. Before a grand jury, she claimed that Samuel left her only a few months after their wedding and that they had never gotten divorced. Under his given name, Samuel Hargrave, Samuel was accused of bigamy but entered in a not guilty plea and his bail was set at $3,500. He was detained until his trial date on February 1st, since he was unable to come up with the cash for his bail. Samuel was ultimately found guilty and given a two-year prison term. In 1906, Sam was released, and Linda and Sam made the decision to move west and carry on the work they had begun in Minnesota. As soon as they arrived in Puget Sound, they bought 40 acres at Olalla, Washington. It was there that Linda commissioned the construction of Wilderness Heights, her medical facility. But before long, the name of her peaceful getaway changed to something much more gruesome, Starvation Heights. In Linda's 1908 self-published book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, she described food as the root of disease, writing, quote, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire, craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. According to Linda, the way to true health was to periodically allow the digestive tract to rest by going without food for a few days or more. Patients only ate little amounts of vegetable broth at this time, and their bodies were flushed with daily enemas and intense massages that, according to the nurses, occasionally sounded more like beatings. Greg Olson, in his book, Starvation Heights, which again is what locals would eventually come to call Linda's center, describes how British sisters, Claire and Dora Williamson, the orphan daughters of a rich English army officer came to be patients of Linda's. While vacationing at the opulent Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia, the sisters came upon the first advertisement for Linda's book in a newspaper. The two believed they had a variety of minor illnesses, while not being critically ill. Dorothea complained of swollen glands and rheumatic symptoms, while Claire had been told she had a dropped uterus. The sisters were ardent proponents of what modern terminology could refer to as alternative medicine. They had already given up eating meat and wearing corsets in an effort to become healthier, they were eager to receive what Claire referred to as Hazard's most beautiful treatment as soon as they learned about her Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala. According to Lovejoy for SmithsonianMag.com, the sisters were drawn to the Institute's rural surroundings almost as much as to the alleged health advantages of Hazard's program. They had dreams of fields of grazing horses and vegetable broths cooked from farm-fresh ingredients. However, the Olala Sanitarium wasn't even nearly finished when the women, who had signed up for the treatment, arrived in February of 1911. Instead, Linda relocated them to an apartment on Capitol Hill in Seattle, where she started feeding them a broth made from canned tomatoes, two cups of it each day at most. When the girls began to get dizzy during their therapy, they were given lengthy enemas in the bathtub, which was lined with canvas supports. Two months later, when the Williamsons were moved to Olala, one concerned neighbor estimated that they only weighed around 70 pounds. If any of their family members had been aware of what was happening, they would have been concerned as well. The sisters, however, were accustomed to their family disapproving of their health pursuits, so they kept their journey a secret. The only indication that something was wrong was a mysterious cable sent to Margaret Conway, their childhood nurse who at the time was visiting family in Australia. Even though it was only a few nonsensical words long, the nurse decided to travel to the Pacific Northwest to see how the girls were doing. Margaret set sail for Vancouver and had planned to meet up with Sam Hazard on her arrival. But it was then that she receives the tragic news that Claire had passed away as soon as she arrived. Margaret was indignant despite the fact that she wasn't a doctor. It was clear that something was wrong. Dora could barely sit down because she only weighed at this point around 50 pounds. Linda had been designated as both Dora's guardian and the executor of Claire's will. The hazards in the meantime had helped themselves to Claire's belongings, including her clothes, furniture, and approximately $6,000 worth of diamonds, sapphires, and other jewelry. Linda even gave Margaret a report on the condition of Dora's mental state while wearing one of Claire's robes. Margaret failed in her attempt to persuade Dr. Hazard to permit Dora to leave. She was at a disadvantage because Linda was renowned for having influence over others. And she frequently felt too frightened to disagree with individuals of a higher social class. In the end, Dora had to be released by John Herbert an uncle of one of the sisters who had traveled from Portland, Oregon. After some arguing, he agreed to pay Linda around $1,000 just to allow Dora to leave. In the case of Claire's death, it was the British vice consul in Tacoma who pushed Kitsap County to bring charges against the hazards. Dora Williamson volunteered to pay for the prosecution when they said they couldn't afford it. And when Herbert and Agassiz began investigating the case, they learned that Linda was tied to the deaths of a number of other wealthy people. And those individuals, before they passed away, had given her huge portions of their estates. It's estimated that at least 12 people died of starvation under Linda Hazard's care. However, some believe the number may be far higher. Linda is put into custody in August of 1911, And the Tacoma Daily News headline read, Officials expect to expose starvation atrocities, Dr. Hazard depicted as a fiend. Linda claimed that a group of conventional doctors were trying to harm her because she was a successful woman and they didn't like natural treatments. According to Beck for HistoryLink.com, she told reporters, quote, I intend to get on the stand and show up that bunch. They've been playing checkers, but it's my move. I'll show them a thing or two when I get on the stand. The trial for hazard began in January of the following year at the Port Orchard County Courthouse. In the crowded building, maids and nurses testified about how the sisters had sobbed in agony throughout their treatments, endured hours-long enemas, and baths that burned to the touch. The Williamson estate had been completely depleted by forgeries including checks, letters, and other forms of fraud, which the prosecution referred to as financial starvation. Darker even, there were rumors, though never confirmed, that Hazard was working with the Butterworth mortuary and had replaced Claire's body with a healthier one, so no one would know how frail the younger Williamson sister had been before she passed away. And Linda herself steadfastly refused to accept blame for Claire's death or the deaths of any of her other patients. The judge had to reprimand Linda for signaling to witnesses, but her attorney managed to keep her herself off the witness stand. In addition to incriminating medical testimony, a thorough paper trail that included a forgery of a diary entry in which Claire claims she wanted Linda to have her diamonds demonstrated the hazard's true criminal nature. Linda claimed that she was being persecuted because of politics, but the jury in Linda's trial was unimpressed. They reached a verdict of manslaughter following a brief discussion. Linda's medical license was suspended and she was given a hard labor sentence in the Walla Walla penitentiary, but for unclear reasons, she's eventually pardoned by the governor, although her medical license is never returned. She would travel to New Zealand to be close to her supporters after serving only two years in prison and fasting to demonstrate the effectiveness of her regimen. When the Hazards relocated to New Zealand, she worked as a doctor, dietitian, and osteopathic practitioner, wrote another book, and made even more money. She had earned enough money by 1920 to return to Olala and construct the sanitarium of her dreams. Because her medical license had been revoked by the state of Washington, she referred to it as a school of health. The opulent instructor had an autopsy chamber in the basement, and Hazard persisted in starving her victims to death. In 1935, the Institute was destroyed by fire, and three years later, Linda, who by this time was in her early 70s, became unwell and started a fast of her own although she's unable to ever recover her health. And not long after that, she too will die. One could argue that despite spending a brief stint in prison, Linda is never really held accountable for her crimes, especially since after she's released, she continues to practice medicine, put people on her fasting treatment and have them ultimately pass away. But there is a sense of irony that Linda will pass away in part because of her own fasting regimen. But that brings us to the end of The Life and Crimes of Dr. Linda Hazard. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion for something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com or on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.